The following program is a presentation of the Wartime Podcast Network in association with PCN. I hope you enjoy the program, and remember, history is best when it's shared. After a great victory over Union forces in June 1863, Robert E. Lee marches his army to Pennsylvania. The advancing Confederates clash with General Meade's Union Army at Gettysburg, beginning the most famous battle of the Civil War. Explore our nation's past and the Gettysburg battlefield with the Gettysburg Collection. Become a member to stream hundreds of Gettysburg videos online, on the app, and on Roku. Learn more at GettysburgCollection.com. Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome to Battlefield, Pennsylvania. Today we're filming on location at Wrightsville, York County. In the summer of 1863, Robert E. Lee's Army of Northern Virginia invaded Pennsylvania. Their target, amongst many, was Harrisburg. To capture the state capital, they'd first have to cross the Susquehanna River. And to do that, they'd have to take control of the Columbia Bridge. For that reason, on June 28, 1863, Confederate soldiers and Pennsylvania militia did battle here at Wrightsville. By the day's end, Harrisburg was spared, but the world's longest covered bridge was completely destroyed. Hello, I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Joining me today to discuss the Battle of Wrightsville and the burning of the Columbia Bridge is research scientist and author, Scott L. Mingus, Sr. Scott, thank you for being here. Thank you, I appreciate it. You're active in the Civil War community. Tell us a little bit about your background. Sure, I grew up in southeastern Ohio in an area that was rife with Civil War history. Uh, I lived about 10 miles on the same road as the birthplace of Civil War General Phil Sheridan. Uh, William Tecumseh Sherman was born farther on down the same road, and in the other direction was George Armstrong Custer. So I was very interested in Civil War history. My dad was a World War II veteran. Uh, I had ancestors who fought in the Civil War at both Antietam and Gettysburg, and my great-great-grandfather uh, fought under Sherman out west as a 15-year-old drummer boy in the 51st Ohio Volunteers. Now you've written a few books, could you talk about them? Yeah, I have. I've written uh, 15 books now, uh, 13 of which are now in print, two more are coming out this year. Uh, mostly on the American Civil War with a strong focus, uh, of course, on York County and the Gettysburg Campaign, as well as uh, some of the battles uh, here in this area. Now, the Susquehanna River looms large behind us. and there is, there is a bridge that crosses it not the one we're going to talk about. Could you talk about the early history of the bridge that connected uh, Columbia and Wrightsville? Sure, of course. Uh, I cover a lot of this in a book uh, that I wrote called Flames Beyond Gettysburg. Uh, but in the early days, the Susquehanna River was kind of the barrier between civilization and the Indian country. And as people pushed westward, there were a series of ferries that started connecting uh, Lancaster County uh, behind us uh, to the east and York County and later Adams County and then on to the wilderness. Uh, by 1810-1812 time period, it became necessary to, because of all the passenger traffic that went through this area, they wanted to build a bridge. So the citizens of Columbia across the river, a uh, number of businessmen there and investors, decided to build a large bridge uh, that would span the river. Uh, at the time, it was the longest covered bridge ever built on Earth. Uh, it was, not, it was uh, open to the public in 1814. Uh, 
It was built uh, by famed bridge architect James Moore Jr. Uh, bridge was knocked down in 1832 by an ice storm uh, and the investors decided that it was too low and it was in the wrong position. So they moved the bridge downstream to uh, behind us in the location that some of you may see on the screen with these piers which are 15 feet higher and above the ice level. So they're using the same timbers. They rebuilt the bridge and it reopened in July of 1834. And famed generals uh, William Henry Harrison and Andrew Jackson were among some of the first early uh, prominent passengers to go across the new rebuilt bridge. It was also featured predominantly in the Underground Railroad uh, because again, uh, if you could get the slaves across the river into Lancaster County, the fugitives would then be picked up by the Quakers and would be uh, quite free. So this has quite a history as far as both uh, commerce, commercialization, as well as the Underground Railroad. Now the history we're interested in today is the American Civil War. Of course. The summer of 1863 is an interesting one. Could you take us up to the war at that point? What's going on? Sure. Uh, the Union Army had been struggling, uh, particularly in the fall of 1862 in the winter. Uh, that winter they had lost, of course, a series of battles, had a stalemate at Antietam, but had lost a bloody defeat at uh, Fredericksburg. In the spring of 1863, they lost again at the Battle of Chancellorsville, uh, although Robert E. Lee lost uh, his key uh, assistant, uh, Thomas Stonewall Jackson, in that battle. Uh, but morale was relatively low in parts of the North. Uh, Robert E. Lee certainly thought he could make it uh, into the North. Uh, it was an opportune time that, uh, because Northern sympathies, at least the perception in Richmond was, Northern sympathies uh, you know, were not favorable to the government that perhaps the timing was right uh, to consider an invasion of the North. Now, why was Pennsylvania so attractive to Lee? It will be a full-scale invasion. I think there's several reasons. I mean, one, uh, Pennsylvania was a large uh, supply, potential supply of food and supplies to his army. Uh, Lee had been struggling feeding his army, uh, particularly uh, over the winter and throughout the uh, Fredericksburg and then the Chancellorsville campaign in the spring. Uh, he had a, a lot of concerns. Could he really feed his army for another year off of Virginia? They've been fighting for over 18 months in Virginia. So the food supplies were low. So Pennsylvania and Northern Maryland offered an excuse to get a lot of food. Secondly, Pennsylvania was also attracted because of the railroad network, the supplies and things that came through here. Most of the coal for the Union Navy came from Pennsylvania through these very railroads that were in this region. Uh, there was also the possibility of uh, some strong Southern sympathy in this area. Uh, because of the strong relationship Southern Pennsylvania had with Baltimore. And then finally, Pennsylvania was a Republican state. In fact, it was probably the largest Republican state in terms of population. Uh, the governor of the state, Andrew Curtin, was a strong ally of Lincoln. And there was some sentiment among the Confederate uh, high command that if they could march on Harrisburg and potentially take it, that uh, that would again send shockwaves through the North against the Republican administration and the Peace Democrats and other people who were opposed to the war could potentially then rise up and force the Lincoln administration to the negotiating table. Now, if we could for a second imagine yourself as Lee, what are the most attractive targets available in Pennsylvania? Yeah, I think there's several. I mean, one obviously is the railroad network. So that leads to the town of York, which was a critical railroad depot. Uh, it was the largest town between Baltimore and Harrisburg. So York was an obvious target. Uh, York also had a U.S. Army base in a large U.S. Army hospital, as well as some major supply depots. Uh, Chambersburg was also a fairly attractive target because it was on the Cumberland Valley Railroad, which ran from Hagerstown, Maryland, up to Harrisburg. Harrisburg itself, of course, would be a key target uh, if you could take it. 
but those railroads uh, became very critical. And again, York, Chambersburg, Carlisle, places like that, that were railroad towns and also had either military facilities and or supply depots were quite heavy in the sinking. There's a real sense in places as far as Pittsburgh, even Philadelphia, they might be targets. Was there any chance Lee could make an effort at those places? Well, those places were certainly concerned. In fact, uh, there was also concern that Lee was actually targeting Charleston or Wheeling, West Virginia, because that was going to become a new state on June 20th, 1863. And Lee, of course, had fought in that northwestern part of Virginia early in the war. So there were concerns there about them coming. There were concerns in my native Ohio about Lee coming into Ohio. And of course, here in Pennsylvania, as you mentioned, both Philadelphia and Pittsburgh, because of the heavy uh, arsenals, the gun foundries, uh, the manufacturing might of those cities, as well as their ability to recruit, and the political fallout certainly became targets. Uh, President Lincoln, once he got word that the Confederates indeed were coming this direction, called for 100,000 volunteers, 25,000 from West Virginia, 25,000 from Ohio, and 50,000 from Pennsylvania. Uh, as historians, we like to go to the sources. We like to see them. Uh, does Lee write anything about what he wants to do in Pennsylvania as far as the targets we've just discussed? Yeah, Lee uh, has, you know, Lee's primary goal again is to win a battle in northern soil. Um, so he certainly will give instructions to uh, Lieutenant General Richard Yule, who's leading the advance into Pennsylvania, to quote unquote uh, capture Harrisburg if it comes within your means. Uh, but, you know, Lee never explicitly wrote that he wanted to take Harrisburg and, and end the war. I mean, certainly for him, the battlefield was the objective and the destruction of the Union Army was really his goal. And again, the key phrase is, if it comes within your means, then he would have taken Harrisburg. One of the things I see reading your book is Confederates really believe that South Central Pennsylvanians might even welcome them as they sure. come in. Why was that? I think there were several reasons, Brady. One is that this area was widely known as a strong uh, peace Democrat and or Southern Democrat bastion. In fact, some of the townships here in York County, for example, uh, one of the townships, Mannheim Township, voted 98% against Lincoln in the election. Uh, other townships were in the high 80s, high 90s. So the South Central tier, particularly the southern parts of Adams and the southern parts of York, Franklin counties, tended to have strong connections to Baltimore. Uh, so there was a certain sentiment here, as there was in parts of Maryland, that perhaps the Confederates would find friends in this particular region. Uh, or if nothing, at the very least, they would find uh, anti-Lincoln sentiment that would at least at minimum not interfere with their activities as they came through the area. We often think of the Civil War as being very North and South. Why would a Northerner support or have any Confederate sympathies? Well, I think there were several reasons, particularly in the southern part of Ohio where I grew up, in the southern part of Pennsylvania, you had historical ties to slave states, whether it be Virginia or Kentucky in the case of Ohio and southern Indiana, or in this region, uh, Baltimore, as I mentioned a few times. So because your trade uh, was very much with the South, uh, there was a lot of uh, economic ties, uh, certainly. There were also cultural ties uh, in a lot of this region as well. Uh, many of these people were Marylanders or had family in Maryland as well, which was a slave-owning state. Um, and there was certainly an element that believed that uh, if the Confederates wanted their independence, let them have it. Just leave them alone. Uh, that, you know, it's not the United States government's business to uh, interfere. Uh, and so that sentiment, particularly in southern Ohio, was very strong in some areas, but you certainly ran into that here in Pennsylvania as well. Now, did most Confederate sympathizers in the North actually support full secession or reunion under new terms? Ah, 
a lot, there were degrees of Southern sympathies, if you will. Some were merely to the point that, you know, as I mentioned, just leave them alone. There were other people that whose beliefs were that the Confederate uh, government was right in seeking their own independence. I mean, there were a number of Northerners who still believed in states' rights. Uh, Stephen Douglas, in fact, had popularized a term called popular sovereignty in the years before the Civil War, which implied states had the rights to do what they wanted to. Uh, and so there were a certain number of Northerners that were adherents to Douglass's policies that still believed that, you know, if a state wanted to do what it wanted, if it wanted to have slavery, it could have slavery. If it wanted to secede, it, it could do it. On the extreme were uh, a few uh, Northerners whose sympathies went all the way to actually joining the Confederate Army. Uh, so there were a number of uh, civilians here in York County who traveled down to Baltimore or traveled to other parts of the South and actually joined up. In fact, the Confederate Brigadier General who commanded the forts defending New Orleans was born and raised here in York County. Some Pennsylvanians may have welcomed the Confederates. Some didn't. We know one group that especially didn't, African Americans. Can you describe their experience during this time? Sure. A number of the African Americans here in Pennsylvania were multi-generational. They've been born and raised in Pennsylvania. Uh, back in the 1780s, Pennsylvania had uh, given gradual abolition to slaves, and so a number of the people here were third, fourth, fifth generation descendants of slaves. A number of other uh, Pennsylvania blacks in this area were refugee slaves themselves, who had left Maryland or Virginia or even places farther south, had come to Pennsylvania because of the uh, positive attitude, if you will, uh, towards uh, abolitionism in parts of Pennsylvania. So. Naturally, when they got word the Confederate Army was coming into this region, many of the African Americans in Pennsylvania were quite concerned. And when reports started circulating that the Confederate advance guard, particularly uh, Albert Jenkins Cavalry, uh, had entered Franklin County in the Chambersburg region and were actually kidnapping freeborn Pennsylvania citizens, as well as what they suspected to be fugitive slaves, and were hauling them off, uh, presumably back to Virginia to be sold into slavery. Then a number of the African Americans in this region, in fact, the vast majority of them, uh, abandoned their homes and left, trying to get across the river. And at the time, there were two, only really two crossings of the river between Harrisburg and Maryland. One was the Columbia Bridge here in Wrightsville, uh, in Columbia, and of course, there were bridges at Harrisburg. So those African Americans flocked over those bridges, and there were reports that as many as 1,800 uh, African Americans crossed into either Harrisburg or Lancaster County in the days preceding the Battle of Gettysburg. With the Confederates moving north, panic starts to spread. The governor of Pennsylvania, Andrew Curtin, calls for forces to be raised by Pennsylvanians. What does he ask for and what does he get? Sure. As I mentioned briefly earlier, Brady, uh, Lincoln had asked for 100,000 volunteers, half of which were to come from Pennsylvania. So Governor Curtin, convinced that the attack would be on Harrisburg, uh, personally uh, started raising troops on his own. Uh, he called for the 50,000 volunteers. The problem was really threefold. One uh, is a number of Pennsylvanians had already served in the Army. Their terms were up and they didn't want to go back. Two, there was a significant concern that even though the curtain was calling out the state militia, uh, and these men were going to join the militia, there was a lot of concern that they'd be forced into the Federal Army for either nine months or perhaps as long as three years, and people didn't want to serve that. And the third issue was it was summer harvest. And a number of these uh, Pennsylvanians simply wanted to stay home, manage their crops, uh, take care of their families, uh, and certainly bring in the summer harvest. Uh, some of them had already 
in past rumors of invasions or past incursions, as with Jeb Stuart's incursion of October 1862, there were a number of Pennsylvanians had then joined the state militia, uh, and they were like almost like Chicken Little, uh, skies falling. As the rumors since that time that the rebels are coming, uh, they're like, I don't want to join the militia again. They're not coming. So there was generally an attitude in this region of almost disbelief when word finally hit that the Confederates truly were coming. If you're a Southerner and you see Pennsylvania militia, are you afraid? No, I mean, in fact, uh, Confederate Major General Jubal Early, who commanded one of the uh, wings of the Confederate Army, the wing that went through York and ended up here at Wrightsville, uh, called the state militia, quote unquote, utterly inefficient. Uh, and often uh, the Confederates really didn't want to shoot these guys. They wanted to capture them, take their shoes, take their equipment, things like that. But they almost laughed and mocked uh, the state militia. In fact, in one case, uh, as Jubal Early on Friday, June 25th, took the town of Gettysburg uh, and captured uh, more than 175 of the state militia, he paraded some of them in through the streets of Gettysburg and mocked them as uh, you know, pretending to be soldiers and they should go home to their mamas. So the militia needs a lot of help. Yeah. Andrew Curtin calls upon Granville Howler. Right. Who's he? Granville Howler was a uh, man born in York, Pennsylvania. His father died when he was two years old. Uh, so he was raised by his mother. Uh, his brother was a uh, prominent physician in the area, but his mom had wanted him to be a preacher. And she wanted to send him to Gettysburg to the Lutheran Seminary. He wanted to be a soldier. So he tried wangling an appointment to West Point didn't get that, uh, an appointment that instead went to Civil War General Walter Buell Franklin, who was also from here in York. So Haller ended up going to Washington, uh, managed to get interviews with prominent people, signed up for the Army, uh, never went to West Point, but he uh, went uh, and served in the Seminole Wars, served in the Mexican War, and then was out in uh, Washington Territory fighting the Yakima Indians as a uh, first a captain or lieutenant, then a captain in the 4th U.S. Infantry. At the time of the Civil War, he was a major in the 7th U.S. Infantry. He had commanded the headquarters guard under George McClellan during the Battle of Antietam and then under uh, Ambrose Burnside during the Battle of Fredericksburg. But he got ill over the winter of 62-63, was back home here in York, Pennsylvania, recuperating, uh, went to uh, Harrisburg, offered his services to Governor Curtin, and because of his vast military experience and his political connections, uh, you know, having been a personal friend of George McClellan's, he was named to command the forces defending the river in York County as well as the railroad uh, frontage in Adams County. The Civil War in many ways is about rivers, railroads, and mountain passes. Whenever Lee wants to invade Pennsylvania, what avenues are available to him? Lee is going to use the Shenandoah Valley as his main route of invasion. Uh, Shenandoah Valley points somewhat diagonally at Harrisburg. Uh, becomes north of the Potomac River, becomes the Cumberland Valley. Um, so that's a natural route of invasion. He can block the mountain passes to the east and kind of keep the mountains between him and the Union Army. Uh, once he gets into Pennsylvania, uh, in the Cumberland Valley, he now has two major options to get to Harrisburg. One is to follow today's U.S. Route 30 through Gettysburg, through York, and onto the river here to take the bridge uh, at Columbia, or perhaps to burn that bridge if he's worried about Union troops from Philadelphia coming into this region to reinforce the Union Army of the Potomac. His other major route is to follow the Cumberland Valley Railroad and what's today Route 11 uh, northeasterly through Chambersburg, uh, through Carlisle, and 
confront the bridges in uh, Harrisburg at uh, what is today Lemoyne, uh, then called Bridgeport. Set the stage for us a little bit. Robert E. Lee's army earlier in the summer is divided into two parts, one under Stonewall Jackson, the other James Longstreet. When Jackson dies, the army split into three. Right. Who is controlling those corps and where do they go in Pennsylvania? Sure. Uh, Lee feels that replacing Jackson uh, is a hard task for one man. For a long some time, he's wanted to divide his corps up into three parts anyway, his army into three parts, because he thought it'd be easier for men to uh, maneuver. So he divides them into three, assigns two uh, major generals as new lieutenant generals, uh, and brings his army into Pennsylvania in three parts. The first uh, of the three corps that come into Pennsylvania is commanded by a one-legged uh, gentleman by the name of Richard Stoddard Yule. Uh, that is a uh, division, of th has three divisions in that, one commanded by uh, Jube Orley that's going to uh, uh, come into the Chambersburg region. They'll be east of Chambersburg in Greenwood, Pennsylvania. They will be the uh, division, if you will, roughly 7,200 men or so at the start of the campaign. Uh, their job is to come towards York and take this. Uh, Lieutenant General Yule has two other divisions, one under Robert Rhodes, one under Edward Johnson. Their mission will be to take Carlisle, take Chambersburg, and drive to the river at Harrisburg. Uh, the two other corps, one is commanded by a fellow by the name of Ambrose Powell Hill. Uh, Hill will follow these guys into Pennsylvania, but he'll be the last of the three corps to arrive because his primary mission is to screen the Union Army in Fredericksburg, keep them intact, pinned into Fredericksburg as long as they can, uh, and buy time for Yule's uh, uh, Corps and the uh, First Army Corps under Lieutenant General James Longstreet, who will follow uh, them into Pennsylvania. So as the events of the weekend of June 25th, 26th, 27th, 28th uh, come into play, Yule uh, will be in Chambersburg, ready to march on to Carlisle and Harrisburg, Longstreet will be heading into Maryland, will be behind them, ready to uh, come into Chambersburg behind them, and Hill's Corps will be uh, on the road north as well, heading towards Maryland. There's a lot of fear in Pennsylvania at this time, sure. but Robert E. Lee is very clear, do not damage public property. Correct. Why? I think there are several reasons. I mean, one, of course, Lee uh, had very strong personal beliefs that uh, civilians were not collateral as other people may have believed uh, later in the war. Uh, his feeling was civilian property needed to be protected. Secondly, he certainly did not need the populace of Pennsylvania rising up against his army. Uh, as you recall, Brady, we chatted about the fact that many of the Pennsylvanians, at least in the Confederate psyche and mindset, were going to be sympathetic. So you certainly did not want to antagonize them. Uh, third, the goal wasn't to terrorize the civilian population, although that did happen, of course. The goal, of course, was to draw the Union Army out of Virginia, perhaps draw some forces away from Vicksburg, where U.S. Grant was challenging him, and try to get the Union Army in open ground to fight him here. So uh, he certainly did not want to leave Pennsylvania a smoking wasteland, if you will. And to be very frank, uh, you know, those intact working farms were to his advantage that he could take the supplies out of many of those farms as opposed to destroying them or burning them. Is playing that type of politics something Lee does throughout the war? Uh, at least or most, throughout most of the war, Lee does that. Certainly by the summer of 1864, the politics are starting to change and you're starting to go to more of a total war attitude, which I don't think Lee ever really totally felt comfortable with. Some of his subordinates, such as uh, uh, Jube Orley, uh, in the summer of 64, will actually burn a Pennsylvania town, Chambersburg, 
Uh, most of the town will actually get burned to the ground in retaliation for union destruction of the Shenandoah Valley where warehouses and uh, private farms and granaries and grist mills, things like that were being destroyed. So the war changed a lot from Lee's orders in 63 to what happened in the next two years. Now, Lee is clearly expressing a courtesy to the people of Pennsylvania not destroying property. Did the Union ever return that courtesy? Well, early in the war, of course, the Union Army did try to protect some of the civilians, but there was a lot of destruction of the town of Fredericksburg uh, during the uh, uh, December of 1862 campaign. That left a bad taste, obviously, in a lot of Southerners' uh, hands. And of course, by the summer of 1864, uh, Sherman's army uh, would march through Georgia, and in that case, it was almost total war. Uh, there was a pathway of destruction and desolation that many of the Union soldiers would leave throughout uh, southern Georgia, all the way to the coastline. And then uh, uh, in 1865, the Union Army would actually uh, be accused of setting fires that would burn most of Columbia, South Carolina to the ground. So the common perception in the South was the Northern Army was brutes uh, and that their soldiers were far and leaders were far more chivalrous. Uh, obviously in the North, uh, particularly in Southern Pennsylvania, uh, the term chivalry wasn't necessarily associated with the Confederates. What did the average Southern soldier think about Pennsylvania when they first came? Was it oh. what they thought it'd be? Yeah, I think the average soldier was actually quite surprised. I've read uh, hundreds of diary entries and journals, letters, and post-war reminiscences. And it's really four things, I think, that uh, four themes, if you will, that come out of it, Brady. One is that the average uh, Confederate was amazed at the uh, lushness and fertileness of the ground. Uh, there's a lot of comparisons of Pennsylvania to the Shenandoah Valley, uh, just in how similar it was uh, agriculturally. Uh, secondly, the size of the barns astounded the Confederate soldiers. Uh, some of the Confederates, in fact, would write uh, one uh, classic passage. One rebel uh, deemed that the fact that the Pennsylvania Dutchmen must love their barns more than their families because their storage facilities were three to four times larger than their living quarters. Uh, a third thing that astounded them were the women in this area. Uh, unlike the South, where many of the women were so-called genteel, uh, here, a lot of the women in Pennsylvania were working women. Uh, they were used to hard life. Uh, and there are a number of accounts of the Pennsylvanians being surprised at the coarseness of the language of many of the mountain women, particularly uh, in western uh, uh, part of uh, Adams County and in uh, uh, Franklin County. And uh, of course, uh, they also reported a lot of these women had uh, hands that obviously were used to hard labor. And the fourth thing in this area that amazed the Confederates when they came in was how many able-bodied men and boys there were, who were not in the Army. Um, everywhere they turned, whether it was on the street corners, whether it would be in the uh, farm fields, uh, they were again astounded by the number of males that were not in uniform, which uh, in some cases the Confederates right, rightfully described in their diary entries that this was a reserve manpower force that was to be reckoned with in the future, as the drafts of 1863 and 64 would tap into that manpower and prove the Confederates to be right. One of the realities of an invasion like this is occupation of towns and cities. Sure. Given Lee's orders, what did the average Confederate occupation in Pennsylvania look like? Sure. Uh, in many cases, as the Confederates came into the region, and I'll use Jubal Early as an example, as he marched into Gettysburg, again, the instructions were not to harm the citizens. He often kept his troops camped outside of the towns, leaving a provost guard in the town to restore order and frankly to protect the citizenry. Here in York, uh, early posted guards around some of the key private businesses 
to break, so that uh, soldiers who were wanted to loot or even as benign as sightsee or perhaps uh, uh, you know, steal things from grist mills or from flour uh, uh, bakeries, things like that, Lee actually would post uh, guards uh, at those facilities. So keeping the troops out of the towns as much as possible other than leaving the guards uh, was very prominent. The one thing though, keep in mind Brady, is they were looking for supplies. So it was very common for the Confederate officers to lay tribute to the towns that they occupied. Uh, in Gettysburg, for example, on June 25th, when Early occupied that town, he asked for uh, $6,000 worth of supplies, which included shoes and boots and food and beef and things like that. If he didn't get that, he asked the small town, which is about 2,400 people, they didn't have a lot of money, for $5,000 in cash. When he came here to York, uh, being a much larger town, about 8,600 people, uh, and again, the largest town between Harrisburg and Baltimore, he asked for $100,000 in cash here in York. Uh, and there's similar stories of other towns being asked for major amounts of supplies as well as money. Now let's focus in a little more on the events that happened sure. here. The, the Brigadier General from the Confederacy that will take center stage is John B. Gordon. Tell us about him. Yeah, John Gordon was born in Upshur County, uh, Georgia. His father was a minister, had uh, almost a dozen children. Uh, Gordon was the fourth of those children. He and his father, uh, before the Civil War, owned a series of profitable coal mines in Tennessee, Alabama, and Georgia, uh, near the confluence of those three states. Uh, Gordon had went to college for a while at the University of Georgia, had dropped out, uh, had studied law, had spent some time as a journalist, uh, had no military background whatsoever. Uh, Gordon uh, volunteered his, some of his friends and his workers uh, early in the war. A lot of these guys wore coonskin caps and buckskin clothes. They ended up in uh, Milledgeville, Georgia, in the capital of the state, volunteered for the Army, and the governor took one look at him and said he had enough troops. So Gordon, on his own, uh, financed uh, uh, telegraphing the governors of other key states, managed to convince the governor of Alabama to accept his men. So he bought tickets for 100 guys, went to Alabama, and was commissioned as a private uh, in the uh, 6th Alabama Infantry, was soon elected as the major when that regiment was formed, became its colonel, then fought in the uh, sunken road at the Battle of Sharpsburg, where he was shot uh, numerous times. In fact, uh, by his own account, he was laying bleeding, dying, uh, drowning in his own blood with his face face down in his cappy after his uh, cheek was shot uh, by a Union bullet. And supposedly there was a hole in the, in the cappy, cappy, as he talks about, blood drained out, he lived. Uh, he spent the entire winter recuperating, was promoted to Brigadier General, and then uh, led Georgia troops for the first time in the Chancellorsville campaign as a general, marched here into Pennsylvania as the head of one of the most uh, battle-experienced uh, brigades in Jubilee's division. With the Confederates bearing down, both sides know that this bridge, the Columbia Bridge, is vital to defending and capturing Harrisburg. Right. Could you reiterate why that was so important? Yeah, I think it's an important point to realize that again, from Harrisburg south to Conowingo, Maryland, there's only one way to cross the river uh, south of Harrisburg, and that's this bridge. Uh, there were a couple fords, but they were underwater because it had been raining very heavily this spring. There are a number of ferry services that still existed as well, but all the ferry boats, of course, are going to be no value to the Confederate Army because they're all going to be taken to the eastern uh, riverbank. So to defend Harrisburg, it's really fairly simple. If you can protect the bridges at uh, Lemoyne and Harrisburg, uh, today's Lemoyne, then Bridgeport, uh, and the bridge here at Columbia, 
you can keep the Confederates off the river. Uh, and so Harrisburg can be protected relatively simply by simply putting troops in those two locations in mass and either uh, burning those bridges or destroying the, uh, the ability of the Confederates to get across the bridges. Now, conversely, if you're Robert E. Lee, and again, you've told Lieutenant General Yule to take Harrisburg, you know, if it comes within your means, um, end quote, then you realize you've got to take those bridges. Or, or if, you're, if you decide you can't really get to Harrisburg, then you need to destroy the bridge here at, right, uh, at Wrightsville and Columbia because there's a lot of Union troops uh, stationed in uh, Philadelphia that can quite easily move into this region via rail and be here within a matter of hours uh, to prevent a, uh, another front, which Lee's going to have to fight. So the bridge becomes really important. Now, Lee's original orders to Yule, who in turn uh, sends them to General uh, Early, is to burn this bridge. Because there's, at the time, the impression is that the battle's going to be fought somewhere in northwestern York County or somewhere in Cumberland County, perhaps, on a line between York and Carlisle. And having this bridge out of the way, again, prevents Union troops from coming onto Lee's left flank if you assume a defensive posture, which General Longstreet, of course, is going to encourage him to do here in Pennsylvania. Well, the, as I mentioned earlier, uh, General Early believes the, the militia is quote-unquote so utterly inefficient, he decides that I'm going to capture this bridge, I'm going to take Harrisburg on my own, I'm going to take my troops into Lancaster County, I'm going to mount them on all the captured horses we can find in this region. In fact, more than a thousand horses have been taken across this toll bridge into Lancaster County. Uh, nice windfall for the bank that owns the bridge, but a windfall potentially for early if he can get all those horses, mount the Louisiana Tigers or Gordon's Brigade, and then go take Harrisburg on his own. Uh, and in fact, you know, the ever aggressive early believes he personally can, uh, you know, end the war, if you will, by such a maneuver. So his actual orders are to burn this bridge. He'll decide on his own on the 25th and 26th that it's better to uh, take the bridge. So this is the world's longest covered bridge. Correct. As important as it is, both sides are fully willing to burn it down. Correct. Yeah, and that's the irony that uh, eventually, as the events are going to happen, yeah, both, both sides uh, certainly realize its importance. In fact, Governor uh, Curtin and Major General Darius Couch in downtown Harrisburg have actually ordered the Conowingo Bridge uh, down in Maryland, as well as the Columbia Bridge here uh, on the banks of the Susquehanna, and the uh, railroad bridge and the covered passenger bridge at Harrisburg to be loaded with fuel oil and or make other preparations to burn it. So as the Confederates are starting to come into Pennsylvania, actually here in, in Wrightsville and Columbia, they will bore holes in the superstructure of this bridge. They'll load it with gunpowder and they'll be prepared to try to blow the superstructure apart, hopefully to damage the bridge to the point that the Confederates cannot cross into Lancaster County and hopefully then the civilians can rebuild the bridge rather quickly and resume it because this bridge is very important to the economy of this region. Uh, the Pennsylvania Turnpike goes across it, the main road between Philadelphia and Pittsburgh. The railroads go across it and it connects the canals uh, because there are canals on the western bank in, in uh, Columbia and on the eastern bank here in Wrightsville. And again, this bridge is the key co uh, connection between them. So it's very important to the citizens that this bridge not get burned down, but it's very important to the governor that if he has to, He's going to knock it down. But his first goal, the uh, Governor uh, Curtin's goal, is to protect private property, of course, on his own. And so they will put troops here in Wrightsville to try to protect the bridge 
uh, with a burning it as a backup plan only if necessary. Now vital to the events that happen here is the occupation of York. And that's an amazing story. Can you take us through how York is captured by sure. the Confederates? Sure. Uh, Gettysburg fell on the afternoon of June 26th, uh, Friday, June 26th. On Saturday the 27th, the Confederate Army starts marching towards York County to get this bridge. Uh, the citizens of York really don't know what to do. Uh, they do have an Army camp there, but the Army camp doesn't have a lot of soldiers in it. U.S. Army Hospital has only a, less than 100 guards. They've got a, you know, more than 1,000 patients in the hospital, but most of them are, again, patients. Uh, so they're not much of a military force either. So York uh, is debating what to do, and a young York uh, Quaker businessman by the name of Arthur Briggs Farker jumps in his carriage, rides west, tries to find a Confederate officer to try to protect York. Um, as Brigadier General John Gordon is leading General Early's uh, vanguard uh, through the town of Abbottstown, right on the York-Adams County border on U.S. Route 30 west of here, Farker will run into General Gordon and he'll, you know, ostensibly try to protect the women and children of York because a lot of rumors the Confederates are going to pick a town and burn it down or otherwise uh, interfere with the civilian uh, uh, businesses and civilian families and lives here in Pennsylvania. Farker gets assurances from General Gordon that no, no, we're not here to harm women and children. We're not going to harm your factories. Uh, we, you know, don't, but we don't want any interference when we go to York. So uh, he's sternly warned by General Gordon that, you know, go back to York and, you know, tell him we're coming, we're coming in peace, but we certainly don't want any resistance. So Farker makes a mad dash, probably a record speed, back down to the town of York, tells city council about this, and uh, the mayor and a couple of city councilmen, a retired U.S. Army colonel, and a couple other leading citizens jump in Farker's carriage to go back out to find General Gordon and they officially negotiate with him uh, for the uh, peaceful occupation of York. Uh, Jube Worley will later, after the civilians leave, ride down from his camp in Big Mount, Pennsylvania, north of uh, Farmers, uh, the village where uh, Farker's now met a second time with General Gordon, and Early will approve the plan. Uh, so the next morning, Sunday, June 28th, the Confederates will march into York. Now it's Sunday morning, so a lot of civilians are in their Sunday best, they're in the finery, they're ready to go to church. Church bells are ringing as the Confederates come in. And the contrast between York civilians in their you know, Sunday best clothes and these grimy, dirty, smelly Confederates who've been on the road for two weeks, uh, who have really haven't bathed and are wearing the same uniforms, uh, is an incredible contrast. They're dirty from being on the road, et cetera. Uh, Early will occupy York. He'll put troops from North Carolina in the U.S. Army Hospital and in the uh, U.S. Army base at Camp Scott at the old York Fairgrounds. Uh, so they also plant cannons, uh, a number of artillery pieces on the hills north and south of York, pointed at the town to kind of remind them that he's in charge, he's in control. He will ransom the town for uh, huge numbers of supplies. Uh, he'll uh, end up getting more than 2,000 pairs of shoes uh, from the community and from the town. He will also ask for $100,000, as I mentioned earlier, as his tribute from the town. They'll go door to door, Brady, and they'll collect $28,610 in cash from the citizens of York, PA, uh, which the Confederates will use to uh, further their war efforts. Now, years later, General Early, somewhat facetiously, but perhaps with a tone of bitterness, 
will uh, tell a number of newspaper reporters that back during the war, I asked for $100,000 from York, PA. I never got the rest of my money. I want it now with interest or I'm turning York into a collection agency. He even sent a letter to York to that effect and signed it, J.A. Early Esquire, attorney at law, Lynchburg, Virginia. <laughs> uh, now, with York under control in Wrightsville and Columbia, everyone knows they're coming here next. Sure. They begin preparations. What do they do? Yeah, for several days, they've been trying to guard the riverfront. Uh, a number of uh, workers from the railroad, a number of the uh, black civilians from this region who worked in the rolling mills or the lumber yards or the lime kilns uh, that were here in this area uh, helped build the railroad defenses because, again, this bridge is private property, but it's used by the Pennsylvania Railroad as a key connector between Philadelphia and York and, of course, to Harrisburg. Uh, so there's a lot of preparations that have been going on for some time. They've also brought in a number of home guard, uh, non-mustered-in, I'll use the term military units, but in reality these are citizens with uh, their own guns who are really here to try to protect the river crossing. Well, the, Governor Curtin will finally, after raising 7,000 militia, he tried to get 50,000, as you recall, he only gets 7,000, he'll send the 26th Pennsylvania Volunteer Militia to try to guard Gettysburg. Early's brushed them aside, called them utterly inefficient. He sent the 20th Pennsylvania Volunteers to guard York, well that didn't work out real well, and to guard Hanover Junction. And he sends the 27th Pennsylvania Volunteers, who are a little more seasoned unit under a little better leadership, here to protect the riverfront. So uh, as the troops pull out of Gettysburg and pull out of Hanover Junction and York, many of the what's left of the, of the shattered 20th and 26th Pennsylvania Militia will come here and join the 900 or so men of the 27th Pennsylvania Militia guarding the riverfront. Also, as many of the patients of the U.S. Army Hospital who can still fight uh, will form a, their own battalion and more than 200 uh, uh, men uh, who, again, are some of which have no arms, may not uh, have a leg or a foot, may have some other injury, uh, bandages to their heads, Quite a motley looking crew that probably doesn't strike fear in anyone's mind, but they are veterans of the Army of the Potomac. So it's quite a motley force that uh, Major Howler and Colonel Frick, Jacob J. Frick of the 27th Pennsylvania, have assembled here to defend Wrightsville. He's got probably 1,500 men or so here at Wrightsville, and Gordon's going to come marching out on the afternoon of Sunday the 28th with more than 1,800 uh, Georgia infantry, a couple hundred Confederate cavalry from Virginia as well as uh, four artillery pieces. John B. Gordon moves out of York. You have these forces at Wrightsville, June 28, 1863. Take us through the battle. Okay, Gordon will uh, relatively slowly approach this region. Now, he will later claim that he's got a map of the defenses of Wrightsville in his pocket that was allegedly given to him that morning when he passed through York at about 10 or 11 o'clock in the morning. Uh, it takes about an hour or so for his troops to move through town. At some point during that troop movement, he says a girl gave him a bouquet of red roses. And in that bouquet was the complete plans of the Wrightsville defenses. Even if the story is true, uh, he's got these plans. He takes forever, uh, takes a very leisurely march out here, uh, leaves York, uh, as mentioned, probably by 11 o'clock or noon at the latest. He takes him almost five hours to march the 10 miles to get here. And it's probably closer to 5.30 or so in the evening when he will arrive here in Wrightsville and start deploying his troops. Uh, Gordon will uh, deploy about uh, well, a couple miles or so west of town 
at a place called Strickler's Ridge. He will deploy his six regiments of Georgia infantry, send three of them south of town because the town is defended by a horseshoe-shaped set of defenses manned by these 1,500 motley militia and injured veterans and a uh, company of black civilians who have stuck around their home guard company from Columbia and from Wrightsville who are rolling mill workers. Uh, these guys stuck around and they've got guns now at this point. So Gordon will deploy, send two regiments north of town, three to the south as I mentioned, while the 31st Georgia slowly advance towards the Union line to pin them in place while he's trying what in military terms is called a double envelope or envelopment type movement uh, to try to pincer uh, the Union militia, capture them all, you know, get 1,500 you know, pairs of shoes that his men need, as well as all the equipment of the state militia because they get nice shiny guns and new backpacks, knapsacks, things along those lines, as well as all their accoutrements. Uh, but that movement's going to get thwarted because the state militia, surprisingly, puts up a little better fight than anybody expected. They don't turn and run like they have in other places, uh, particularly at Gettysburg, uh, back on June 26th. Here on the 28th, uh, they put up a fairly stubborn defense, and Gordon's delayed long enough for the state militia to start pulling back uh, across the bridge. They're going to, to try to blow the bridge up as the Confederates approach. As it turns out, all they do is knock the walls and the roof off the bridge because it's a railroad bridge. The superstructure, uh, the decking is still intact, and so their next goal is to try to burn the bridge. They hastily will start rolling barrels of fuel oil uh, a mile and a quarter from Columbia to the Wrightsville side of the bridge. They'll douse what's left of the superstructure with the coal oil, uh, and as the militia retreats, they'll set the bridge on fire. So amazingly, it's the Union Army in their retreat that burns this bridge. Uh, talk about the mechanics of taking a bridge like that down, and how fast does it take to burn? To take the bridge, uh, obviously to take a bridge like that down, it's going to take quite a while for it to burn. Now keep in mind the original goal is just to burn a little piece of it, and again have the uh, civilians be able to rebuild it. Uh, so as the troops are moving through the bridge, it's now on fire. Uh, unfortunately the wind shifts, and now you've got the wind pushing the uh, uh, fire heavily towards Columbia. And it's going to take about six hours for the entire bridge to be consumed. All but 20 or so of the state militia are going to make it across uh, the bridge. Uh, they will end up being captured by the Confederate soldiers. And unfortunately uh, for the uh, Union cause, uh, the bridge fire is way out of control. General Gordon, in fact, trying, because again, his orders are to take the bridge, even though the original orders were to burn it. Now he wants to capture the bridge. He starts asking the citizens of Wrightsville for, do you have a fire engine? Do you have buckets? Do you have horse troughs? Do you have water pitchers? What can we use to put out this bridge fire? And of course, the, the citizens are like, we don't have anything, you know, let it burn in effect. Well, then the wind shifts again when the storm blows in, and now the winds are blowing back towards Wrightsville. In this area where we're sitting here, Brady, was a series of lumber yards lining the river. There were manufacturing shops, there were warehouses. There were wooden iron uh, foundries and other structures in this region. And now the entire riverfront's on fire. And now everybody's got a bucket. Everybody's got a horse trough. Everybody's got a water pitcher. Because now it's their town that's threatened, not the bridge. So there's all this fear about these terrible Confederates coming in and causing damage. John B. Gordon actually orders his men to do something pretty incredible at this point. What does he say? Yeah, uh, Gordon will, again, remember Lee's orders were, number 72, were to protect private property. Gordon will order his men to form a bucket brigade 
and to actually start gassing the fires. There are reports, in fact, that they will dynamite a couple buildings, not really dynamite, they'll use gunpowder, but they'll actually blow up a couple buildings to, to make a fire break, and his men will, arm over arm, they will pass water from here in the Susquehanna River behind us, or the Susquehanna Tidewater Canal immediately to our south, and they'll actually pass the water uphill, and they'll douse the roofs of the uh, how, uh, town's businesses and the town's houses to protect them. So it's very ironic that a number of Confederate soldiers, particularly for the 26th Georgia, are involved in this activity of protecting Wrightsville when that morning in the march to New York, General Gordon had informed them that their hometown of Darien, Georgia, had been burned by Union soldiers. And so ironically, these guys knew their own town had been burned down, and yet they obeyed the order to save a town in Pennsylvania uh, that was on fire. So it's an amazing story. What, a, what an amazing time period. Now let me ask, the fire itself is so big, how far could you see it as night fell? Uh, as night fell, there were reports. I mean, it was clearly, the glow in the sky was clearly visible as far away as Harrisburg. Uh, there was very visible in uh, Adams County, places uh, at higher elevation, and was certainly also uh, quite visible, uh, some accounts say, as far as some of the high points in Maryland, you could see it, and as far east as Coatesville, Pennsylvania, which was over in uh, Chester County, you could supposedly see the glow. So it was quite evident. In fact, uh, the Philadelphia newspapers would later report uh, that they thought the town of York was on fire. June 28, 1863, pales in comparison. Many people haven't heard of it or understand why it's so important, but July 1st, 2nd, and 3rd of 1863, everybody knows. What happens to these soldiers after Wrightsville? Uh, the state militia themselves will uh, stay on the Columbia side of the river behind us. Uh, they will protect the river crossing. They'll actually start coming back uh, during the Battle of Gettysburg and they will round up deserters uh, and or other uh, Confederates that were, were remaining uh, behind here in York County. Gordon himself, uh, General Early will come to the riverbank, uh, will somewhat chastise Gordon for his inability to get across the river. He kind of knew this was coming because as he, as he rode here, he could see this column of smoke from the burning bridge and he knew Unfortunately, his dream of taking Harrisburg was gone. Early's division will uh, camp in York until the morning of the 30th. Gordon, of course, will return there as well. They will receive orders to march to the west as Lee's concentrating his army in the Cashtown, Heidlersburg region. Uh, they're gonna fight at the Battle of Gettysburg on July 1st, 2nd, and 3rd. Uh, Gordon will lose almost 25% of his force. Early will lose uh, uh, Gordon will lose about 500 men or so out of the 1,800 or so he has here. Early will suffer about 25% casualties in the Battle of Gettysburg. So many of the men, ironically, who are saving Riceville uh, by passing buckets arm over arm, uh, buckets of water uphill will have those arms removed as a result of injuries at Gettysburg. Uh, so uh, many of these guys who save Riceville will become casualties during the Battle of Gettysburg. If you came to Wrightsville today, what would you see as far as remnants of that day? Sure. There's not a lot left. The actual earthworks and entrenchments are long gone. The town of Wrightsville has grown up over those. Uh, some of the Confederate artillery positions west of town, as well as the ridges where uh, Gordon initially deployed his troops, those are still intact. Obviously, the biggest remnant here in Wrightsville is behind us, Brady, where we see the piers of the, uh, the old Civil War bridge, uh, uh, more than 20 of those stone pillars are still here behind us in the river. Uh, those, of course, would have been what would have supported the superstructure of the bridge. Uh, there are also a number of other uh, small remembrances. 
the canal is still here, uh, parts of the canal where the uh, Confederates would have dipped water and taken uh, buckets of water uphill to save the town. Some of the, the leading buildings are still here, one of which, in fact, is the uh, Rewald House. And we'll talk about that, obviously, uh, uh, for a second. Uh, that was the home of the mayor of the town. Uh, his daughter, on the night the bridge is burning, will ask General Gordon to say thank you for saving her father's house and saving much of the town. She will tell him, come on back in the morning with as many of your staff as you can bring and I'll feed you breakfast. Uh, so Gordon will show up in the morning of June 29th, will eat breakfast before his men leave, head back to York. That house is still here, it's privately owned. Uh, and there are a number of other smaller remembrances as well. What do you think should be the ultimate legacy of this battle? Why does it still matter? I think there's a couple reasons. I mean, one, obviously the locals will tell you that this changed the destiny of Pennsylvania, that if the rebels could have indeed went across the river and taken Harrisburg, that there would not have been a battle at Gettysburg, that things might have been quite differently. I think the actual legacy of this, though, are really threefold. One is the black civilians who fought here. They lost one of their number, who was the only fatality of the Battle of Wrightsville, uh, had his head uh, shattered by a shell fragment. There was a lot of newborn respect for the blacks' fighting ability, and it actually led indirectly to the creation of the U.S. Colored Troops. Uh, this governor of Pennsylvania, uh, Major General Couch, had tremendous respect when the reports came of how bravely these black civilians, not in uniform, but carrying U.S. Army weapons, had. So that was a, that was a legacy of the fight here at Wrightsville, was the African-American experience the rest of the Civil War. Uh, there also was... Uh, the fact that the fighting here um, convinced the Confederates that uh, you know, the civilians were willing to, to put up a fight. Uh, another legacy that came out of this battle as well was South Central Pennsylvania became convinced the U.S. Army and the government couldn't protect them. In the election of 1864, this area went heavily for General McClellan. Uh, and uh, anti-Lincoln anti sentiment and Confederate sympathies were quite, quite hard in this region. Uh, although many of the sympathizers were upset that they lost their horses and cows to the army, that political fallout uh, cost uh, Governor Curtin the support of this area as well as Lincoln in 1864. You have a website. How could viewers find out more about you and your books? Sure. Uh, ScottMingus.com is my website. They also could visit my author's page on Amazon.com and or on SabbathBeatty.com, who is my publisher of many of my books. Uh, I have a uh, website there as well that people can visit and learn about this book, Flames Beyond Gettysburg, that talks about this story as well as some of my other upcoming books from Speedy. On that note, I'd like to thank our guest, Scott Mingus, for being here. As always, if you have questions about today's episode or recommendations for future episodes, please visit our website at pcntv.com. For everyone here at Battlefield, Pennsylvania, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.